I remember riding up over the first pass and riding up over the second pass and riding through the night, the first night and the second night. And the whole time I was just, I'm saying prayers. I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. I'm listening to Green Lights by freaking whatever the actor's name is, that book, right? It's like my audio book I had on. I'm like, McConaughey. McConaughey. I'm like just yeah. screaming out these like weird euphemisms that he's saying. <laughs> and you get to this point where you're near the border of Montana. And they call it like Bear Alley where the trees are pushing on you. And that's the zone where they're like, just be aware. There's, there's bear sightings here all the time. And riding through those areas early in the morning and late into the evening, that area freaked me out. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. Yeah. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around yeah. once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we talking about practice. Hey, Pete, on the dude's run. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Pace and McKelvin. Hello, everyone. Uh, a hello again more quickly than is typical. At the end of our most recent episode, which was just a few days ago, I said, see you next week, just out of habit. But it's the same week, and you're already hearing from me again. I mentioned last episode uh, that we were on vacation last week, and so it was sort of last minute getting that conversation together with Thrawen. Uh So it went out this week. We technically skipped last week, but to make up for it, we're going to double up this week. We're also doubling up on conversations with local Icelanders because Chris Burkhardt just recently relocated there with his family. Uh, Chris has been on the podcast a good handful of times, um, and I've been wanting to catch up with him after his big tour divide effort uh, for a good handful of months now, ever since he finished that up. Um, But I also wanted to check in with him just to hear why he decided to relocate to Iceland, what it's been like to uproot his family, what's it like to to move to a place with notoriously terrible weather from a place with some of the best weather in the world, San Luis Obispo, California. What is he thinking? Turns out it's well, well calculated, well thought out, and he has incredible reasons for it. Family being the primary one, believe it or not. And I just really, really enjoyed this conversation. It was, for only being an hour long, it was so wide ranging. We covered everything from fatherhood and learning from his kiddos to the uh, seismic activity in in Iceland that we covered with Thrawn a few days ago to crazy wild animals he's faced, whether on the Tour Divide or surfing or whatever else. This one just kind of has some of everything. Usually when I hit stop, uh, recording on, on one of these conversations. I really have no idea how it went. I'm often pretty hard on myself directly following even to this day thinking I could have done this better, could have done that better. That part was a little awkward or clunky. Um, but this one, when I hit stop, I just knew it was good. It felt good. We had awesome flow. Uh, and I'm really excited for you to hear it. So sit back and enjoy. Before we dive into the conversation with Chris, I do want to say a huge thank you to OneUp USA for making today's episode possible. OneUp makes the best bike racks in the world. Uh, we have two of them. We have a quad super duty on the Bronco, which means it can carry bikes um, up to 50 pounds 
which is handy for e-bikes, uh, and four of them, which is great for me these days because I ride and race so many different kinds of bikes. On Nicole's little Subi, we have an equipped double, uh, which is awesome for smaller cars, super slick um, bike rack. We also have the rack attached 2.0 on the Bronco, so it swings out and makes opening the tailgate easy. I love one up. They're so innovative. It's so quality, uh, all made in the USA, free shipping, um, on most orders and, uh, just great stuff. I highly recommend you go to the number one word up dash USA.com to learn more and order yourself a new rack or accessory. If you're in the market, catch you after the show. Berkey is back. I think you have the record for most podcast appearances, by the way. Dude, I might, I might three, four, something. I feel honored. I'm like, I'm still feels weird to be on a podcast that's so outside of my realm and and has so many elite badass people on here. I'm grateful. <laughs> um, all right, you're joining us from Iceland, which isn't that unusual. At least half nope. of our podcasts have been recorded with you in Iceland. Um, yeah. But you're you're a local now. You were like an honorary local for a decade or decade and a half. I don't know exactly. But you've made a big move, um, and now are spending the majority of your time there in Iceland. and And I want to get some insight into, of course, why you decided to do it, all that sort of thing. Some of the current events that are going on. That's one of the the things I wanted to talk about today. Um, but. First, if you, I think it would be fun to kind of paint a little bit of a picture of what it's like to be a local Icelander in November versus a local in San Luis Obispo this time of year. Yeah, great, great question. So every day, it's every every day and every person who lives here. You basically like the weather is the first thing that pops up on your web browser. It's the first thing that <laughs> pops up on your phone. You know, you're, you're constantly looking at the weather cause you just don't know what it's going to do. And it really does change from day to day. You experienced it. Like it's a tricky thing. And, and sometimes your day will be built around that one hour of sunlight that you'll have, or that like two hours of thaw where it's above freezing and Iceland, you know, you're in Colorado right now. You're in Durango right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't even get as cold, as Colorado, to be honest, like really? Iceland is not that cold. Yeah, because it's coastal, so you get yeah. this coastal influence. It's the wind that gets you. It's the wind that makes the ground freeze over and everything. It's just that wind chill that gets so brutal. And you know, when you're surrounded kind of on two, three sides by the ocean, you get wind in every direction. And so, in the morning, if I'm going to go ride my bike or commute, I'm like, am I going to put on my studded tires, or am I going to like my wheel set with studded tires, or am I going to put on, you know, my regular ones? Like, it, everything kind of comes down to what the weather's looking like, and you know, how many layers am I going to put on? Because right now, it's the trickiest season. Some days will be, you know, five degrees Celsius, so almost like 40, 41, something like that, and then some days will be like negative two. And it just totally varies. Yeah. And, and I, there's days where like you'll walk out in the sidewalk and it has just this tiny layer of frost that'll get you, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was literally, I was on the, I was walking on the beach the other day with my son and like fresh water was pouring onto the sand and it made like a sheet of ice and I almost died. I swear. I was like, <laughs> it's just a, it's just a shocker. Like, you know, things to get used to. I've never grown up in a mountain town being in slow right now. It's basically summer. I was, I was back in California about two and a half weeks ago. And I was like running with my shirt off 
you know, on trails and I was like, I'm going to soak this in. I'm going to get as much vitamin D as possible, not just for me, but for everybody in the country. <laughs> because right now, right now we're getting between if the sun is out and it was a clear day, you'd probably get three hours of like full sunlight mm-hmm. and then, you know, a couple hours of, of kind of dim light, but rolling into the next month, it's going to be like, you have very little light, if any. Right. Yeah. And it just depends on where you're situated. And most of the country gets no sun because they're in a fjord, yeah. but yeah, we're in sunny Reykjavik. So a lot of people are probably listening to this wondering why, you know, you, you, you were living in a place that many, many people listening would probably love to live a place known for some of the best weather in the United States. Um, it is. You- <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous to think about. It's ridiculous to think about when you I mean, were, it actually uh, probably is. When you were pitching this to your, to the boys, you have two sons, your wife, Bree, when you yeah. were pitching this to your family, how long was that process? Was this like years in the making or, you know, what, what, what is, what was the pitch? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it was, it, it was years in the making. I mean, I've, I've been coming here forever. Um, yeah. I've been coming here for the, over a decade and, and traveling here and fell in love. And I brought my wife multiple times and all of a sudden, my kids got to that age where I was like, you know what, this is the time I want to invest in creating memories with them and, and actually spending money on travel because they're going to remember it. And that's rad. But it, it started a couple of years ago and we came here for two weeks as a family. And then the next summer it was like, let's go for a month. And then the next summer it was like, let's go for three months. And I, we went for three months and we were like, we came home to California and it was like end of August and it was just a hundred plus degrees spires everywhere you know it was it was turning into a desert this is before the the really big winter mm-hmm. that we had and 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 it was just like why like we were just depressed i mean that there's no other way to put it we were all yeah. pretty depressed and i think that you know i kind of had this like crises moment where i was like you know what like i i i sit there and i give these you know I talk on social media or I give speeches to, you know, some fortune 500 or whatever it is for my job. And I'm telling people the importance of getting outside your comfort zone and finding this growth and blah, 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 blah. But I, I genuinely felt like I wasn't living that truth in it. So it, it just kind of struck me like, like a pile of bricks. Like I need to push myself to be in a place where I'm going to find more growth. And I think that actually, what we found was much more than that, to be honest. What we found was like freedom for my kids. They've never experienced before. They like ride their bike to school. Mm. They ride their bike to friends' houses. I, I would never let them do that in California. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a there's a safety element to it that's really spectacular. And also just I don't know, we get a I get a chance to spend more time with them. And my backyard is you know, relatively my backyard is like some of the most beautiful landscapes in the planet. So I feel like the moments are more intense. The The time together is more intense. I feel like I've given them something that they, they aren't going to find in, in other where we live back home. And I really wanted them to grow up with one really important thing. And that is just that they could have a choice when they get older to see mm. how one part of the world lives. And if, if they want to live in California, great. And if they want to choose something else, wonderful. I just know that wasn't an option for me. I had to figure that out the hard way. Um, and, and it, you're a byproduct of this too. Travel, I'm sure has changed your life and changed your perspective. And so I just wanted to offer them that and because I feel like that's the best I can do. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and before we started recording, you were mentioning uh, kind of the component of community too um, and how it felt like uh, back in your area, back in back home in California, like there was this uh, slight separating that happened of the community in part due to COVID. Hmm. Um, yeah. And there in Reykjavik and, well, I mean, Iceland as a whole, and we'll get into this, just how key community is and everyone – to a degree is relying on each other because of the way that Iceland yeah. is. Um, but there's also, <laughs> there's also, uh, you know, like uh, almost old school community that, you know, small town mm. U.S. places used to have, or we, we hear about the good old days, you yeah. know, where you could just ride your bike down the street to, to play with some friends. Um, and it sounds like where you are now offers that to the kiddos a bit more. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about what it's been like to integrate into a tighter knit community, like being a little bit more of a neighborhood setting? Um, yeah. What, what, what that transition has been like? It's a great question. And, and you kind of nailed it. Like there is less walls being created between people and more bridges. And I think that, and I mean that figuratively and literally, because I, I think that because of the weather and the harshness of this place, what you find is that it doesn't matter if your neighbor and you disagree, you're going to, you're going to come to each other's aid and you're going to find some mutual respect because in the winter, in a snowstorm, that's going to be the person that's going to pull you out, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you, you find that even more so in the countryside, but there's some challenges obviously to integrating into like a, one of the hardest languages to learn <laughs> yes. countries in the world. Yeah. You know, what's wild about it though is like I never really this didn't really dawn on me in the beginning but um, my wife's been taking Icelandic courses um, I haven't yet I've obviously I know it a little bit I know like restaurant Icelandic but my kids you never really think about this but you ask so much of them to do something like this uh -huh. and for them learning the language is like it's survival because if they want to keep friendships and have friendships and whatever they're gonna have to for us, like I can get by, everybody accommodates me. They accommodate, you know, tourists and foreigners and whatnot. But for them, it's, it's different. And I, I never really thought about that hmm. um, and how important it is for them to learn it. And it is, it is a really challenging language. Like there's nothing about it that isn't really. And, and I think also just the customs in general make it challenging. But one of the things that was a shocker and, um, I think you'll appreciate this is like I in California, you know, we lived again, it's slow, it's a rad, rad area, excellent riding. I do miss the bike riding. It's a, it's a hard thing to train here yeah. if you're not in the summer. Yeah. Um, but I, we used to like, my wife used to drive our kids to like a, a Waldorf school and then they, she had them in like a, a private school cause she wanted a more art based curriculum. Right. Which is awesome. If you can afford it, like best thing ever. Wait, your kiddos kids. went to Waldorf? We they went to Waldorf. Did you know that I and went to Waldorf? They went. Yes, I know. That's why I was saying. Did we talk I about appreciate this? it because I remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. like a years ago. Okay. Um, which I I know is like a big deal, and I know you're a big advocate for like these more art based yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of curriculums. I think you had told me like that was a big thing for your parents too. And was one of your parents an educator as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So my mom. It's yeah. funny. She was a substitute teacher uh, for a little while that was honestly, that was mostly kind of to help with tuition. Cause like you're saying, there's a bit of a barrier of entry yeah. some of the time. Um, totally. and then she, she went to school to become an actual teacher. And then actually she was the administrator of the Austin Waldorf school for a handful of years. But no anyway, yeah. Rad. 
<laughs> That's awesome. I love that. And I, I remembered like in the back of my mind, there was some piece to this, but um, it was wild because so they had been in public, private Waldorf, whatever in California over the course of years. And, yeah. and, and upon coming here, the first day at public school, because we were like, oh, should we put him in an international school? We want him to be with all the other kids and speak English. And we were like, nope, we're going to huck him into the deep end no of the pool. Way. Let's huh. just see if they like it. And and because if you're in a pub, private school, you're in a community. You're like all your friends and all your neighbors are with you. And like they ride their bike to school with other kids. And there's like street gangs of kids on bikes. It's insane. <laughs> um, but they, they came home. They came home the first day and they were like, this is the best school we've ever been to. No way. And because they like, yeah, because in the public school, like, dude, they're, they're going to swimming, they're, they're going to football, you know, soccer, and then they're yeah. going to do wood, woodworking. They, it's like the way it's set up is it's so amazing. I never even knew that was a possibility. Huh. And, um, and so, yeah, I don't know, just really so cool. how much long winded answer. No, no, <laughs> this is awesome. I actually want to spend another minute on this. So how much English is spoken in the classroom there for them at a public Icelandic school? Well, it's funny because they're kind of like they're an advantage to all the other kids because mm. all the other kids are, are trying to learn English. They have an English curriculum, and yeah. my kids are are like are they're they're great at that. And yeah. so, but but when they do everything else, they they speak in Icelandic, they teach wow. in Icelandic, and what the teachers what the teachers do is they say, okay, you need to ask your fellow classmates for them to explain it because then it benefits the classmate and it benefits my son, um, kids. So it's kind of like this. Uh, yeah, it's just like, you know, there's sometimes where things get lost in translation and they have to speak up. But I also think it kind of forces them to like speak up for themselves and be like, I didn't understand that. I, d- I didn't get that. I need explanation. And every day I'm amazed by them. I'm like, I'm, I'm inspired by this change because that would be so hard for me, you know? Wow. So are they coming home yeah, yet? And are, are they coming home yet and just be like, dad, come on, like, our Icelandic is so much better than yours already. How, how do you not understand this? Dude, like I'll try to count to 10 and they'll be like, dad, that was so lame. Like you didn't, you didn't, you, you totally butchered like half. The, I was like, okay, okay. Geez. Um, so yeah, they totally do. And they're like, it's, it's crazy. Like right now my son is, he went to, <laughs> he went to um, swimming practice and then he just went to uh dry land training which is like ski club but off season and we grew up in california by the beach they've never been able to do anything ski related and so he's like psyched that he gets to experience that so i guess from that experiential point of view like the the weather's harsh every, lots of things are harsh but what what they get to experience and also like what i get to experience is pretty rad so. mm, that's very cool Interesting. And I could see Icelandic public school being like the closest thing to a Waldorf curriculum of any sort of public school curriculum globally, you know, just yeah. with all of the mythology and, and, and arts that are part of the culture totally. there. Um, okay. So speaking of community, one of the reasons that I wanted to jump on and, and get you on sooner than later um, is because of all the seismic activity that's happening uh, in Grindavik, the little seaside town that's southwest yeah. of Reykjavik, just 20 minutes from the airport, I guess. Um, really close to the airport. Like you would, if there was an eruption that happened, you would see it as you took off. And cool. You would see smoke as you took off. And in fact, that's what makes this so dangerous is that I've documented the last three eruptions for National Geographic. All of them have been away from water infrastructure and houses this one 
has a fault line that literally goes through the town to the sea and connects back with some of those other eruptions that happen. It's really potentially a catastrophic situation. Yeah. So I actually had Thrallen on a few days ago. Um, and nice. So, yeah. So he get finally, I mean, I've been thinking about it for two years, but same sort of thing. I was like, you know, if ever there was a, a, a timeliness for this. And so he kind of described the, the basic orientation of um, this big magma tunnel that's like 15 kilometers long that's going straight through this yeah. little town that's been evacuated. Um, obviously, he has a bunch of family there. Not anymore because they evacuated. You've spent plenty of time there. One thing we didn't talk about as much that you just mentioned that I'm really curious about is why uh, it potentially why an eruption um out at sea or underwater could be a big deal because you'd almost think that like it it would be better but he actually said that's like second worst case scenario yeah well um so to kind of reverse the clock 2010 afiat erupted um, afiat was the big eruption that basically grounded half the flights in europe and caused billions and billions of dollars and in whatever damages to just you know everything global business basically and that was because it happened under a glacier and it it didn't start that way it started as this beautiful small eruption next to it and then the next one happened right neck right next door under this glacier and what that does is basically it's 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 heating up water and that's creating the ash and so these last three eruptions we've had 2000 20, 21, 22, or 21, 22, 23. These were all just in a basically an open landscape where there was old debris and moss. And so there was burning happening. There was a little bit of like, you know, there's always something burning, but there was no ash. And so if it pours into the ocean, that's what will happen. It will create ash. And that ash is what settles over the town. It's what kills livestock. It's what really, you know, is painful for, you know, people with uh, breathing, you know, disabilities. And, and just ultimately would potentially ground flights if the wind was the wrong direction. So that's kind of where it gets scary. Um, you know, the ability to not be able to leave is a little <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. But again, it, it's all a wind pattern thing. Like if the winds are favorable, it's fine. You know, I've got a lot of friends who are Iceland air pilots and they're all on kind of high alert. And I don't know. It's, it's a very dynamic situation in that town. You just... I was actually thinking about this today, like how painful it would be just to basically leave your town, not knowing when you could come back, knowing that that most likely if an eruption happens and it and it goes to the town, you're going to see on the news your house getting burnt down. You know that's so heavy. Like it's it's heavy as a as a person who's kind of a documentarian, and it's my responsibility to document it, and I have you know, uh, I have contracts in place to go out and shoot and document this for news sources and whatnot. But at the same time, you're just like, Oh man, it makes me sick knowing that like, these are people I know personally and nothing they could do, you know, nothing they could do. They just literally their home is being right now, as we speak, it's being destroyed more and more and more. So you mentioned this on, on social media today, actually, um, the last, three have been beautiful, incredible natural events that haven't posed much risk to, to people. Mm -hmm. And you've, you were one of the leaders in in beautifully documenting them and kind of showing, showing them to the world. This one's different. Mm -hmm. And Thrown actually talked about how different it feels 
um, there, your responsibility, you know, as a, as a documentarian, you alluded to this on your story. What do you feel? Like you say you have contracts in place in regards to documenting this one for news outlets and that sort of thing. But as, as a photographer, as a documentarian, what are you feeling? Like, how are you thinking about this one differently? What might you do differently if there is an eruption? Yeah. Well, I, I first and foremost think that the, the news needs to be told and not because not, not for a paycheck or for anything else, but I think that history needs to be documented. It's, yeah. it's what, how we learn. It's how our kids appreciate it. It's how people will learn from their mistakes and so on and so forth. It's just the most important thing that you could do, I think, as a, um, as a filmmaker or a photographer or whatever. But that being said, I think there's a tactful way to do it. And what's really challenging is like back in the day in Iceland, when, the Vestmanair Island, <laughs> it erupted, it destroyed hundreds of homes and, and truly impacted a community, but there was no social media. So mm-hmm. there was no instantaneous, like, I'm here, check this out. This church is burning down. I think it's a very different thing when we have the instantaneous and the ability to like, for me, you know, push this out to millions of people and, and potentially the, the, people that I, I worked for and have worked for could push it out to way, way, way more. So I think it's about tactfulness. It's about working with local news sources. It's about um, un- understanding the tone and the tenure in which you kind of share these things and just being empathetic to the fact that like, you know, maybe there's a, a right time to release certain things and maybe there's a wrong time and just kind of, and, and I don't really have the answer because I've never been in a situation. Um, and, and I'm, you know, luckily I'm unaffected by it, but at the same time, you know, for certain, I'm going to do my part to like raise money and raise funds and raise awareness to how people can support these, these people and, or this place when it's all said and done. And I think, I guess that's the other part of it is, you know, it's, it's a, we, we, we walk a complicated line. Um, anybody who, who really uses a camera as a, as a tool to document the world and, I think that especially when it comes to human suffering, it's a very complicated, tenuous issue. You know, and one side of it, you are benefiting, you know, I mean, just full transparency, like the, the destruction of this natural landscape in the past, it was beautiful and it was, it was unharmful, but, but I benefited, you know, my career, my images were published, et cetera, et cetera. But now on the other side of the coin, now that it could potentially be catastrophic, and yet you're still benefiting. You really got to ask yourself what you're doing mm. to give back um, because it's, it's okay to benefit. I mean, there are press photographers there that, that they, this is how they put food on the table. They yeah. document live events and it's kind of sickening when you, when you express it in the way that I am. But at the same time, this is why I guess I've always felt such a, like it's imperative that at the end of the day, you're doing something to give back. You know, you're using these images as a way to share people's story, share what they lost, share how people can support them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I just feel like that's something that I really try to take to heart and think about. It's almost what I think about more than trying to compose a beautiful image or something like that. I, I want to figure out how I could use these images, this story to support those people, you know? Yeah. And it was the same thing with like Hawaii, you know, and, and, and granted, like I haven't been everywhere. I haven't been all over the world. I tend to try to really get involved in causes when it's been places that I've been to and I've experienced, I know the people when Kauai had its issues, you know, we were able to raise a lot of money using the images that that I've shot and just anything where I feel like I've had my 
fingerprints on, I really try to think about that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you also posted a link uh, this morning to uh, some fundraising efforts. Um, mm-hmm. And one thing that uh, Theron said the other day that I thought was interesting is that so much of the the first responder efforts are volunteer oriented, like the, whether mm-hmm. it's backcountry rescuers. Dude, or, all of them. It's insane. It's yeah. insane. Like all of them are. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, I mean, that's a whole other different cultural conversation. The fact that they have such a robust, I guess I can say you now, the fact that Iceland has such a robust um, team of first responders and, and rescue teams and all that sort of thing. Uh, despite it all being volunteer based is really interesting in and of itself. But um, no doubt that uh, raises the need for, for some fundraising. Um, so what exactly, what exactly is helpful at this point? You know, if people are seeing the images or videos of, I mean, if people haven't seen it yet, there's literally houses that just like ha- imagine like a supersized table saw just goes straight through a house like it's just a these fault lines are just opening up these chasms in the earth and there hasn't even been an eruption yet so um yeah there's already that's what's great i mean there's gas gas lines fissure like there it's just it's it's catastrophic it's literally like what you picture it it looks like stranger things season four like i don't know if you've watched it's like it's like that type of thing apocalyptic it fully is and yeah so um, so you're asking pe- people can, yeah, people can donate to the Red Cross. That's going to support the first responders. I think that there will eventually be other forms of donation if, if needed. And, and yeah, it's complicated, but ISAR, Iceland Search and Rescue, it is all a hundred percent. Um, it all, it's a hundred percent free. Like, like they provide the service. There's maybe a few key people in like you know, upper echelon positions yeah. to get paid, but mm-hmm. yeah, but like, it's an honor. Like I have a lot of friends who like, they are stoked to leave their day job and go help out and, you know, get in these badass four by four rigs and drive, you know, over a glacier and find some tourists who knows it's, it's a really cool thing. It's honestly like this super burly boy scout type of thing. <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. awesome. And yeah, yeah. Men and women everywhere. And, and I will just say this just to, just to harp on this one more time. If you've been to Iceland enough, you you will have called upon their services. I've I've been somebody who's been um, who's had to call upon those services. I remember years ago, I'm on a surf trip, driving through the middle of the country. It's February. Our we hit the brakes and our car just fl- like slid off the road. And luckily, it was a safe zone. Couldn't get it back on. Uh, black ice everywhere. And we we called you know one one two ISAR, and out of nowhere, an hour later, some like grandma in a Hilux, Toyota Hilux comes over with a toe strap and just yanks us out. And it was just like, <laughs> it was the raddest thing ever. And I just, yeah, you feel so indebted to those people. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. That's really cool. Um, okay. So speaking of wild adventures, rescuing people from glaciers, uh, you've done all kinds of crazy stuff, extracurriculars beyond your photography. Um, your, your brand of photography in some ways is like photographing places that are really hard to get to finding um, opportunities to capture the natural world in ways that rarely if ever have happened because they're very, very hard to get to. And then also that, that sort of that interest and passion like bleeds into your own athletic ideas, Mm. goals, 
wild ideas. Yeah. You've done. Absolutely. (laughs) You've done all kinds of, I mean, winter crossing of Iceland, um, all kinds of stuff. You've crossed Iceland in every, every which way, done plenty of stuff globally, but last or this most recent summer, um, you decided to tackle the tour divide, which on paper for, for people who may, might maybe not aren't, aren't as familiar, it might seem somewhat similar to stuff you've done in the past. It's just a massive Mm. adventure, a massive mission, human powered, a lot of suffering, Mm. get to see incredible landscapes. Um, But it was really different than, than stuff you've done in the past. And one of the key differences Mm. is that it was competitive. It was a race. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear, I know it's been on your bucket list for a long, long time. We can get into some cool stories if we have time, all that sort yeah. of thing. But one well, of the you, things- I mean, you were there, you were there during the impetus because it was that trip with you and me and Lael that, that, the West that Fields, I yeah. started to consider it. Yeah. Cause I remember like talking to her about it and she, you know, in typical Lael fashion, she's like, you should do it. Just like, she's you very know, convincing. Like that, you know, <laughs> yeah. That loving, loving grandma, like you should do it, Chris. Yeah. And I, I'm like, I was like, you know what I should like, I feel, and I felt, and I still feel like it's, it's, it's like anything else, you know, you you do this long enough, you feel almost a a pull to that experience because it is the granddaddy of all bike packing events. And and in many ways, maybe the the granddaddy of all like, you know, dirt, gravel, mountain bike, kind of this hybrid um, of, of race experience because it's so long and it's so big. And what it lacks in technicality, it makes up for in every other thing. And mm-hmm. I think that the logistical nature of it fascinates me. Like it, it fascinates me how you can just be so loose and so raw like Lachlan and, and just win. Or you can be so calculated and so technical and so precise like Kurt Refsnyder and, and, and also win. He's also a beast in his own right, but he's yeah. way more meticulous, way more like, you know, you know, somebody I would imagine like a mad scientist, like counting yeah. grams and dialing and these things. And, and it's just, it's a crazy, and you saw both sides of the spectrum on the divide. And I think I sit somewhere more on the slightly technical side. Like how can I shave grams off of this to make up for that? And then you've got Lachlan who's pulling out like a bell that he some, for some reason carried a thousand miles. And I'm just like, dude, what? <laughs> like, um, and I, I had the, I had the, I had the ability to chit chat with him, uh, in-depth couple calls before just sharing my experience and kind of sharing some parts of the route that I would be looking out for, have a heads up on, you know, be aware of, of this things that kind of, uh, I don't know, that, that just really caught me off guard. And, um, it was a, th- th- there's so much to say. It's honestly hard to even synthesize it down. I guess, yeah. I guess it's just a matter of, um, this was something I always wanted to do. Uh, I was grateful. I went out. I'm, I'm, in, in utter transparency, I'm disappointed in my performance, and I think mm-hmm. that it's hard to know how much of that how much of that was gear related because I had some serious serious um, um, you know issues with drivetrain and just just some other things and 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 how much of that was just me you know making ill decisions. You know? Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I guess one one thing I'm curious about is how the competitive setup of this one as compared to some of your other adventures, how that changed the experience for you, if at all. It changed it a lot. You know, the clock never stops, <laughs> never stops. You want it to stop, but it doesn't stop ever, <laughs> even when you sleep or you don't sleep. And 
I think it's so painful to see people peeling ahead and despite where you are on the route. And it's, you know, truly, there's so many things that were told to me in, in the prep and planning stages that didn't fully like, that like the light bulb didn't go off until I was there. And people were like, you know what? The racing doesn't start till Colorado. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. And that's the truth. Like the racing doesn't start till Colorado, you know? And um, How, why, it's so What do you mean by to, that? Well, you know, it's, you're halfway through the route. Um, basically, you got two states to go, but they're arguably the biggest states. I think the hardest. Um, it's funny that we're talking about states. <laughs> I know, that's <laughs> um, so insane. And, and yeah, it's insane. <laughs> and I think that like the, the jitters are out, the bears are gone. You've passed the, you've passed Wyoming, you've passed kind of this, midway point where there's there's no more grizzlies so you're not like as freaked out i guess you could say at night um and uh and i think that like it's not like it's smooth sailing but the end is in sight like it's 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 digestible it's palatable and you usually you hit oh god whatever that ranch is that's like just on the border of colorado where that sweet lady you know gives you like food and a bed and all that stuff um but you hit that spot and at that point it's like it's kind of game on. That's when I think people really start ex- accelerating. I think anybody who's intelligent enough, they would probably save their energy and, and stick to a very regimented plan. And then at that point be like, how much do I have to give? Mm-hmm. And then they would give it all. I think that I <laughs> did not stick to that plan. And I made some very ill decisions early on. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, you know, and then, and then what really sucks is like, you can be making ill decisions terrible decisions or good decisions. And it doesn't really matter because it's all about the trail and it's all about the conditions of the trail and how your bike performs. And there were people on day three, four that I was flying past that flew past me later on. And Why? and that's the part that kind of, um, I think because, well, I mean, I think I know my strengths pretty well. And, and what's wild is like, I didn't, I didn't, so for a couple things, I didn't run front suspension. Um, and that was fine. It was a fine thing. A lot of people have won the route without, you know, without front suspension and, um, and riding a hard, you know, riding a rigid hardtail basically. And, um, but then as you get to Colorado and New Mexico, you have these big, long, long descents and that amount of nerve pain mm-hmm. catches up with you. Yeah. And I was having to like, I was having to I mean, you, you know, this cause I've literally picked your brain about it and listened to all the podcasts and dude, you are coming down some of these descents and there's like a cold sensation running down my forearms. And I'm like, dude, this is terrifying. Like it's cold out. You know, you're, you're losing feeling in your hands. You're worried you're going to get feelings back in your hands. It took me weeks to get feeling the feeling back in my hands. Mm. Um, I think just knowing the type of bike handler I am, where I tend to ride real heavy, I'm, 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 I'm standing up and climbing always, I'm mashing, you know, and like, I'm not that like, like, um, I don't have like that gentle touch <laughs> on the bars. <laughs> and um, I should have really not, I should have not gone for that light and fast and aggressive of a setup. I should have gone for something a little more cush. Mm-hmm. Um, and that caught up with me. And then, you know, mechanicals caught up with me. Uh, you know, I had potentially the worst mechanical you could have was my bottom bracket like started to go out and it went out in the very worst spot you could ever imagine to where like i was basically on the border of idaho and and wyoming dropping into um dropping into jackson hole 
pretty much. And, and this big long pass where like I was having to grab lube and shove it down towards my bottom bracket, towards my crank and spray it with all the lube I could just to get the thing going. Cause it was starting to seize up. Mm-hmm. And I had a mobile mechanic that I had called, um, who basically was like, yeah, I've done this for other people on the divide, you know, and he met me in a parking lot at like 1am to fix my bike. And, and what, what should have taken me, um, you know, three hours to, to do this climb took me like six and a half and I burned. I also put out like way more Watts than I think I ever have. It felt like I was doing a fucking like, you know, Strava segment or like, or like I was, you know, on (laughs) the trainer because you have, yeah, because just to get the, just to get the crank moving, you're putting in all this effort and then it starts going and it's like, dude, it was, it was crazy. And so, yeah, anyway, I mean, long story short, like I, I, experienced pains I've never felt. I experienced all that. And you just, you just, all you do, the worst thing about it is you just wonder, you just wonder how it could have been. Yeah. I am. Um, well, I, I want to get back I to that. Would, yeah. So quick, so quickly in, in the, in the moment there, when you're, when you have this crazy mechanical going on, that's so frustrating. Yeah. Um, where your, your equipment is just failing. Um, how are you maintaining focus to limit the damage? Because it's easy to, when things get really hard, like it's easy to become a victim of the situation and feel bad for yourself and just kind of like knock down the pace a little bit, not make those decisions Mm -hmm. that to that point you've always been making to optimize forward progress and speed. How do you get through that phase uh, and just stay committed? I just, I just kept telling myself and yelling at myself, like, I'm not going to let this be the thing that takes me out of this race. And, um, I, I paid the price cause like the next day I remember I got into that parking lot, the mechanic fixed it. I, I laid down and just slept on the ground for like 45 minutes and then he left and I was like, I really want to sleep, but I'm too scared to sleep cause I'm in the middle of a parking lot on the ground. And this is like a zone where there's like known bears and people have been pulled out of their tents. And I was just like, I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. And I, I pushed it through the night and the next day I paid for it. I was like up on a pass, like one of the last final really big passes in Wyoming. And, and I was just like bawling my eyes out. I had, I, I recorded a voice note and I sent it to my wife. <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm basically just like losing my mind um, because I had stayed up way, way too long. And, and a, a big part because of that mechanical put out way too much effort, no recovery, all that stuff. And I just, it's so funny because I am, um, I'm just telling you this because we're, we're friends and, and, and it's interesting because I, I, I feel like I've processed this enough now. But when I, I did this Bikes or Death podcast with Patrick Farnsworth, he's a, he's a great friend. And I hadn't listened to that voice note when I did it. Like I wasn't brave enough to listen to it because mm. I knew that I knew that and maybe it's just like the documentarian part of me that I was like, you know what? This is my lowest low. I'm going to I'm going to push record. Mm. And um I was recording this voice note and I just had my phone up here and I'm writing and I'm, cl- I'm climbing up this hill. I'm at like 10,000, 11,000 feet or whatever and exhausted and I'm just bawling. And I guess the, the point of the voice note that I was sending my wife was I'm like, you know what? I was like, I have Colorado in my sights. I have Wyoming like to my left. Like this is arguably the most beautiful landscape I have ever ridden my bike in my life. And I'm so, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? I don't know. Of course. (laughs) I was like, I'm so fucking obsessed with 
the numbers and the analytics huh. and who's in front of me and who's behind me. And I'm like, I, I mean, it makes me emotional just thinking about it. I was like, I was like, this is not me. Like, this is not hmm. me. Like I can't even appreciate that I'm here. I'm like, look where I look at where I am. Look where my bike has and my body has taken me. And all I kept thinking about is like, if only this and if only that and like, you know, this and my, my training and my fitness ball, you know, you're just like looking for things to point the finger at. And, and it was just so, I, so frustrating. I was so mad um, that I couldn't, that I was there and I couldn't be there. Like I couldn't physically be there. And I had a good cry and then I moved on and, um, and uh, yeah, and that was really, that was a hard one. And, you know, I, I got into town and, the next town, which was the town, I think it's like Pinedale or something like that, where you actually drop your bear spray off kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and I, and I moved on, but it was, a, you know, it was funny because it took me months to listen to that. I, like I wasn't brave wow. enough. Uh -huh. And, um, and I finally did. And I was like, you know, it's so funny. I listened to it and I was like, you know what? That was like beautiful. Like that's totally honest. Like everything you said, and you should, you should appreciate that. But I think that after the fact, I was so like, you know, this and that, why not that, you know, and just, just, you know, sitting, ruminating on the, the issue, the thing. And, um, so that was a really good eye opener for me. That's incredible. <laughs> I mean, that is an amazing, just crystallization of personal truth, um, in such a yeah, cute moment. No, so does yeah. that mean one of my questions was going to be whether you wanted to do it again? Cause I know you didn't have a super clean run at it. Did that mm. realization, about what you want to get out of being in places like that cure you kind of of interest in these sorts of things in the future? No. <laughs> I can't. Um, I mean. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I, yeah. But I, I will say like, I will say that for sure I want to do it again. But I, I don't even, I don't know if that means I'm going to tour it. I don't know if that means, and just give myself the time to enjoy it. But a part of me would like to race it and just feel like I did the very best that I could. And, and you know, what's funny is like this, I mean, when you li listen to Sophie on and him talk about his journey to like racing it, racing it again, you know, first time he kind of like raced, semi race toured it and how much he learned. I, I really resonate with that. And I really love the fact that he came back. And I also love the fact that like, I think about Lale. And I mean, there's, there's a million opinions about Leo and this and that, but I'm like, the fact that she has done that, the divide that many times, it blows my mind. It blows my mind. Like yeah. she is more of a hero now to me than ever. And anybody, anybody, you know, JP ever, you know, everybody that's dedicated themselves to that is first of all a full-blown psychopath yes and secondly secondly <laughs> probably has way too much time on their hands because training for that ride is so hard and then um but but just the respect and the admiration because there's so much going on in your head and and i will say like i know me and i know that i am a creature of habit um when i am able to do something once and i do it again i tend to do it a lot lot better mm. Um, I don't, I'm not, I don't do well with like surprises being thrown at me and that route was full of surprises. Mm. <laughs> um, so I'd like to, but I also like told myself I was going to take this year 
and I really, there's like some big ski objectives I have and some mm. things like I also like to do other sports and, and, and I have been wanting to cross some glaciers and have some big, so I, I kind of was like, the, I'm going to do the divide. I did a bunch of races up to the divide, um, bikepacking races. And, and then I was kind of like, I'm going to take this year and just not, not do that, not do any kind of big bike expedition thing. Cause my last five years has been every single year focusing on a big expedition, not just the, the divide, but like, you know, again, you know, we talked about like bikepacking in the winter in Iceland and fat biking through here and yada, yada, yada. So I wanted just to, to give it time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That makes sense. No, it's so true. What you mentioned about Lale and Jay Peterberry and, you know, Alexandra Hochin, there's plenty of names huh. that come to mind of people who not even just the divide. I mean, Colorado trail, Arizona trail, like these big unbelievably big efforts and the desire to do that repeatedly from my standpoint is completely unhinged <laughs> it's like, it's dude it and i have and the fact that they bring it up bring it up casually they're like like i remember when we were with lael she's like yeah yeah i just like you know i just got off the divide it's like how is that even casual at all yeah 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 yeah, and it just really, it, I'm so fascinated by that mindset, you know, because I have so much admiration mm -hmm. for those people as athletes. Um, you know, Kurt just did his absolutely mind-boggling um, CDT mission. Yeah, um, crazy. It, it, it's really interesting, and I, I wonder, you know, what sort of, in other realms, people like that exist. You know, like if you were to kind of... Yeah pull folks of that sort of fabric like who else would be on that list of just kind of superhuman um and i think of some like we were talking about before we started recording lachlan you know his ability to go do something like that do it so fast like so much faster than anyone else has ever done it and then show up two weeks later at a grand prix race and just walk around like a totally normal bike racer like guy that was in the world well, like the, uh, right because yeah the bike I think, racing I that i do yeah, the bike racing that I do routinely and the bike pack racing, like it's not even the same sport. Um, and the no. fact that he just goes back and forth so easily, I just cannot wrap my head around it at all. I, I can't either, man. And I honestly feel like that's the um, that's the part about it that like nobody really is talking about that is kind of almost unrecognized. Like despite how the conditions were when he rode and despite – the mechanicals he faced or the temps or wh whatever it was that made his route and his ride on the divide easier or better. I don't know. It doesn't matter. The fact that he 10 days later got up and was just like, I'm going to go race and be in a lead group with elite men, the most elite men in the world racing gravel. I just, it's hard for me to process. And you know that he's not doing it because his sponsors want him to like, they no. don't care. They're like, dude, you, you just did the divide, do whatever you want. Like it's because <laughs> he actually enjoys it. And, that is hard to fathom. Like I didn't, I wanted to burn every bike I owned after the bike. And, and I was like, like, yeah, I mean, I throw them in the volcano. Yeah. I mean, I made some piss poor decisions after the divide. I literally, I, yeah, I oh, got yeah. to the Arizona border. Yeah. Dude, I got to the Arizona border or whatever. Sorry, Mexican border. I don't even know where I am. And I got, I had, I got picked up from a friend and I got driven straight to California, 15 hours. And then I packed my bags that night. And then I jumped on a plane the next morning and I've never had the worst like 
edema in my legs yeah. and body. It was such a terrible, like if you need tips on how to not recover, I can, I'm full of them. <laughs> it's crazy. So how did you feel running? Yeah. How, cause you, how long was that run <laughs> that you did? <laughs> I did two ultras. One, both of them were 33 miles with like about seven, 8,000 feet of gain. But they're the cool. I mean, I, I enjoy them cause it's like, you know, it's an ultra. You're out there by yourself. It's all dirt. You're going up and down mountains. It's there's like, you know, emergency rescue people out in the middle of nowhere. It's not, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an experience. You're running on the beach. You're running over mountains, fjords, like everything. And um, I've I've done some stuff like that in the past, but um, it was cool to go into them so light and like I had crazy endurance. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. I I definitely felt heavy and like I wasn't. The blood wasn't moving like I wanted it to, but. I felt like not even winded really at the end of it. Um, But you know, what's wild is like, I mean, just the body recovers in such a weird way, but I always notice after doing these big efforts, especially, you know, any kind of big bike packing expedition or race or whatever it is, it's always interesting how much your body retains water and Mm. not having done anything like super physical after the divide. Like I ran and I rode my bike a little tiny bit, but maybe like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour. Um, I would pee like incessantly every 10, 20 minutes when I was running, when I'd find, when I'd finally, when I'd finally go into like that race, um, after the first like 45 minutes, my body was just like, it was just flushing out liquid. It's really, I mean, I'm sure this is probably a condition that I have, but I know (laughs) other people have experienced it too, where you're like, your body is holding on to so much water because it's trying to protect you and it's trying to protect your joints and it just knows you went through something traumatic. And then all of a sudden it realizes that you're like, whoa, I need to shed this weight because now I'm doing something gnarly again, you know? And so that's kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing. I mean, there's a lot of weird things, but yeah, it's yeah. nuts. <laughs> so one more divide question that's sort of click baity, but Dude, you, many uh, as you want, I love it. You, uh, <laughs> You mentioned earlier. So we recorded that conversation with Lachlan and I love talking to Lachlan. I love doing podcasts with him, but he's so frustratingly understated sometimes like Australians are are often understated, but he just takes it to a whole other extreme and you just have to like yank these, like how hard was it? You just have to like work at it for 20 minutes for him to actually describe how hard something was. But you mentioned the bears and this is something that people often mention but as a whole many bike packers are a little bit aloof about how hard stuff is uh mm-hmm. a lot of them are kind of like lachlan um you're a storyteller like you 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 are an incredible mm-hmm. storyteller and so i think you might actually be honest about what it was i mean you already have been incredibly honest about what it was like to race the divide but i would mm-hmm. love some finally some real honesty about what it is like to ride across that area where the Grizzlies mm. are so notorious. Uh, and we hear stories every year at this point about people getting pulled out of their, not divide riders, but people in the area, mm. campers, hunters, whatever, getting pulled out of their tents by Grizzlies. What did it feel like to ride through to the night with that just like lurking Dude, in the shadows? There's kind of like two trains of thought. There's the train of thought where you can be constantly aware and, and constantly acknowledging the situation and making noise and everything, or you can just crank up the volume and just say, whatever, I'm just going to totally not even think about it and just go for it. And 
I will just tell you this, like it was never not on my mind. Hmm. And what's wild is like, I saw a bear, everybody I know and everybody I talked to saw a bear. Some people saw a bear ripping down double track fast and like came up on a mama bear, like screeching the brakes and like the bear stood up on two legs. And <sighs> I mean, dude, it, it is the worst part about it though, is that day one, <laughs> just to add to my laundry list of things, I was riding my bike day one, I, you know, the lead group with like Ted and all those guys had kind of peeled away. And I'm like, I'm not going to keep that pace. That's psychotic. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe I'm, I'm whatever. I'm a hundred miles into day one. And all of a sudden I'm like, dude, my mouth hurts so bad. Like what is, did I eat some jalapenos? Like what is going on? And all of a sudden I'm like, I'm like, go on. I'm like, what? I'm just feeling this weird tingling sensation, weird kind of almost like a spiciness. And um, I look down at my bars and I have this little like bar set up, arrow bars, the whole deal. My, my bear spray is kind of tucked into this little slot right there. And um, I see this like orange paste, like <laughs> smeared on my bear spray. No. And I, I stop my bike. I pull the brakes and I stop my bike. And I'm like, all of a sudden it was like a wave of just woof like you know capsicum hit me like a, a wave of spray because my bear canister had been cracked from the vibration i'm you know, riding yeah. fully rigid right and i had it like fully set up in its own thing it had cracked at the seam like a place where it shouldn't have cracked and the mm. bike shouldn't have cracked it but whatever poor construction quality and i'm sitting there and all of a sudden i stop and it's like a wave because the wind had kind of been dissipating it right and i you stop and i'm just like yourself oh, Dude, I was being bear sprayed and I was sitting there and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is worst case scenario. And you know, what's so funny is I had argued with like everybody about, I wasn't going to bring any bear spray. And then Leo was like, no, I don't bring it. And then JP is like, no, I don't bring it. And then so-and-so was like, yeah, of course bring it. Like you're an idiot not to bring it. And then I had gone back and forth. I had it. I was like, dude, it was the very last thing I attached on my bike and six hours in, seven hours in, I was sitting there in the forest and I, I'm, I'm. I'm so sorry to whoever's listening to this, but I just had to chuck the thing. I, I couldn't put it anywhere. It was literally spraying. And if I put it in a bag, everything I had would have been destroyed. I couldn't have even ridden. I had orange bear spray all over my fingers. I'm like grabbing my wet wipes and I'm like using my precious wet wipes and wiping it off and wiping off my face. And I just took this can and I hucked it. It was just, you know, doing that thing. And, and at that point, that's when things actually got really scary because when you have nothing and you're just free balling it going through the forest and i remember riding up over the first pass and riding up over the second pass and riding through the night the first night and the second night and the whole time i was just i'm saying prayers i'm screaming at the top of my lungs i'm listening to green lights by freaking whatever the actor's name is that book right it's like my audiobook i had on i'm like McConaughey. McConaughey. i'm like just yeah i'm just like screaming out these like weird euphemisms that he's saying <laughs> and you go through and you go through some areas like the, the worst part about it is that you're not you're not on like big open double track you know, there are sections of the route, the Flathead Valley, where it's like big open road, trucking road. You know, mm. you can close your eyes and ride mm. this thing. You get to this point where you're near the border of um, of uh, Montana, and they call it like Bear Alley, where there's it's super overgrown. It's double track, but it feel it's as skinny as a single track will ever mm. get. Right? It's just the the trees are pushing on you, and that's the zone where they're like, just be aware. There's there's bears sightings here 
all the time. And riding through those areas early in the morning and late into the evening, that area freaked me out. Like mm. it, it was, it was, it was kind of like, you know, the whole time you're like chest, you're just, your heart's up here a little bit. Maybe it's just me, but I don't get freaked out by much. Like I, the whole route, I slept in the dirt probably more than I should have. I think that my, my desire to be more feral worked against me because sleeping in the dirt and it, it kind of, you realize really quickly that you don't get good sleep. You don't charge anything. You don't get to clean anything off and you, you pay for it every time you do it. And I was kind of like, no, man, I'm going to be hard. I'm just going to like pull over in my sack and lay down here. And I think that, <laughs> I think that that was like, that never freaked me out. I was never worried about any other animal or any other thing that I came across. And I came across a lot of animals. The bears were gnarly and, yeah. um, and, and just, you know, and you'd hear things. You, you know, through headphones, you'd hear rustles in the forest and you're stopping. And, uh, you know, the worst thing is you have a headlamp and you have a bike light. So you're kind of like your bike lights seeing this way, but then your headlamp is like yeah, looking sweeping. And the, the amount, the amount of times that I just saw glowing eyes oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was like, it's the worst. You're just like, Oh God. Oh, Oh God. Like, I don't, I don't even want to know what that is. I'm just going to keep riding. So they're there. It's real. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, um, you got to feel pretty confident um, to not use bear spray, to not bring it. Um, luckily, nobody had to use it. It's, you know, the funny thing is, is that everybody always says it causes more drama than it's worth. And I can, I can <laughs> attest to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I can also attest to this other thing. I was riding through Montana, uh, a, a specific section in Montana, white, right past whitefish. And it's this section where people had told me, and this might be a totally rumor. People are like, oh yeah, this is a zone where they actually have dropped off problem bears before they like have to kill them because like, you know, if they've gotten into people's food or houses, they drop them off here in the hopes that they like last chance come. anyway. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'm riding up this hill, this climb. And I pass this dude, this dude in like a Jeep with all the doors blown off, and like kind of, kind of tweaker esque mm. stops me. And I'm like, you know, I'm in the zone. I'm like, not, I'm like, Oh, Hey, what's up dude. And he's like, are you racing the divide or whatever? And he's like, are you riding up that hill at night right now? He's like, do you have bear spray? And I was like, no, I lost it. Like I can't. And he's like, you need to take my bear spray. And I'm like, I can't take your bear spray. Like this is, it's like, I am not allowed to like take anything from anybody. He's like, I'm not going to let you pass. Holy unless shit. Unless you take my bear spray. Yeah. And he was like, it was like, it was like shotgun in the, in the car, <laughs> like kind of tweaker vibe. And I'm like, I'll take your bear spray. Like I wow. was just like, whatever I've, I've, yeah. And it, and I was like thinking to myself, am I going to chuck this thing? So I don't like break the rules. And anyway, I kept it. And that was definitely one of the spookiest sections of the route mm. for sure. Like you are just, you're ripping, you know, you're going up, you're going down, you're going on single track you're in it. And it's, it's kind of like this the whole time. And just, yeah, I was glad I had it. That's interesting. Yeah, boy, it's a whole nother level. It's one thing to visit a place and there to be wild animals there that kind of sketch you out. I had this in Tasmania with the tiger snakes, but the locals are like, ah, they're shy. You know, someone gets bit like every three years. Like, it's fine. If you get bit, you die. But it's like every three years, whatever, you'll be fine. Yeah. But when the locals are sketched out by the local animals and they're like, you are not going anywhere until you take my bears. Like, that is pretty next level um i know well, you and he was basically like dude he's like i see bears up here every day i'm like okay <sighs> i'm like he's like i live in a trailer he's like i live in a trailer you're about to pass it in a mile 
it was he's like he's like he even told me he's like i have two dogs they're gonna freak out and bark at you they're not gonna run out but like i have those for bears and i'm like all right i'll trust you <laughs> it was crazy yeah. uh, so i know you've i know you've surfed you, you kind of started in surf uh it's where your career yeah. started it's probably the longest running common thread athletically for you i'd have to assume mm. um yeah if you had to compare shark awareness to to this grizzly mm. stuff like are there any parallels there um because surfing yeah. is very, like <laughs> sharks are it's a very infrequent occurrence obviously um one of those things where it's much larger than life you know especially in popular culture and all that yeah. sort of thing but um same sort of thing like it, it could just come out of nowhere no warning and game over like they're way higher than us apex predator wise yeah. <laughs> I would rather encounter a bear than a shark personally. Yeah. But I think it's because if you encounter a shark, like you have, you, you are at your absolute, like least likely position to have any advantage. Yeah. You know, you're vulnerable. in the water, you're a human being. You're so vulnerable. <laughs> if you are in, if you're, you know, with a bear, there are things you could potentially do. But the scary thing about both of them is they're just apex predators. Like it's just, it's a machine that is built to kill. And, Luckily, I think that they don't want us, I would I would assume, unless they've potentially like tasted blood and turned into Cujo or something like that. Um, but yeah, I've, 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 uh, I've seen a handful of creatures in the ocean that are scary and that are overwhelming, you know, sharks being some of them, but crocodiles too and other things mm-hmm. that you just, you know, and a lot of jellyfish and a lot of other little animals that love to um, latch on. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's, it is a funny thing because I will say that there is a sixth sense that you feel when you're in sharky water. Mm. You're just out there by yourself swimming around with a water housing or whatever it is. And there's kelp, bull kelp, seaweed popping up next to you and it's freaking you out. And you just become very aware of yourself and your surroundings. And I feel like that reminded me a lot of being in those zones with the grizzly bears is like, you just feel very aware. You feel very, you feel so heightened and, it, it really works against you because you're, at least for me, I was so heightened that it's almost like that, whatever that level of whatever cortisol or something is just up there yeah. and it doesn't really come down for a while. And like I said, I, I, I mean, dude, I was so tired in Wyoming, like so tired, more tired than I've ever been. Body's broken. Knowing that I was sitting in that parking lot, just trying to sleep. I couldn't even get myself to go to sleep because I was too freaked out. Yeah, that says everything. You know, and, it, and, and, everything. and all my friends are like stuck in a pit toilet somewhere, you know, like <laughs> safe or at a yeah. campsite with other people. It's a very different thing when you're just up on the on the top of a pass in yeah. the middle of nowhere. You know, it's just you. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, interesting. So just quickly, speaking of ultra endurance athleticism, you mentioning jellyfish just reminded me. Have you seen uh, that new Netflix film on Diana Nyad swimming from Cuba to? to florida oh dude yeah the jellyfish bites are gnarly like <laughs> so savage like uh, and, and i love how there's just like nothing you can do you're like yeah cover your body in vaseline you're good like not true it's crazy <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. yeah no, i didn't realize work. i didn't realize that some of those man war it's like you have two minutes not two minutes to do mm-hmm. something like you have two minutes to say your goodbyes i didn't realize that mm-hmm. yeah. some of them were that lethal they will, they will basically like stop your heart. It's, it's really, really wild. I mean, so I, I've, I've been privy to some 
surfers getting stung by some really bad jelly jellyfish, not not man wars, but where they've gotten stuck in their wetsuit at oh. times. I was actually like, I remember being in Australia and there was a um, a really strong onshore current. And what happens is when it's offshore, all the jellyfish they they, they sail right. They just kind of get kicked out to sea, and there's no issue. But when it's onshore, they get pushed in. And they even get pushed in on the beaches. You can like step on them by accident, right? And they're still lethal. Um, and so I remember watching, I was photographing some kid and he's in his heat surfing and he, he, he's wearing a jersey. And uh, this jersey, basically like a jellyfish got stuck right here. And he's like starting to like convulse and he gets on the shore and he's literally convulsing. I, I've never seen anything like it. And they're like pulling this thing off of him, right? It was craziest thing i've ever witnessed it was some really bad jellyfish and or he was hyper um, allergic to it or yeah, something yeah, it's, yeah. they're yeah. gnarly animals yeah i wonder what eat them like what what animal has an sea adaptation turtles. sea turtles my my son told me that yeah <laughs> my son was like dad do you know what do you know what sea turtles eat and i was like i have literally no idea he's like yeah jellyfish he's like they, he, they swallow them like spaghetti i was like that's amazing <laughs> yeah uh, that might be a great end point. Um, I love that. Your sons are teaching you things every day. Icelandic lessons totally. coming in hot. <laughs> Always, man. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Chris. This was so good. It was so good to catch up. So good, man. Somehow that yeah, turned bro. into like Appreciate a, 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 a like Rogan-esque like apex predator. Have you heard how gnarly this yeah. animal is? Like, I don't think we've ever done that <laughs> yeah. on the podcast, but it was fun. <laughs> No, <laughs> you could go deep, deep dive into that thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. It's cool, kind dude. of funny though because just, just, just to that point, once I, it's, it's like I love the fact that surfing has always had those elements of like fear, and you're in some somebody else's home, you know. And I do love that bike packing. It it does put you in that element, you know. Mm. Imagine being in a gravel race and being like, oh god, right around like corner number seven at mile seventy, like there's a grizzly bear or a mountain lion that lives there. <laughs> like it, <laughs> it may take out, you know, it may take out like you know Peter Stetton or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> god, man, some of the crashes though are kind of like that. You're like, was there a grizzly bear that just took out half Gee. the peloton, or how did that just happen? Um, all right, man. So good to catch up a little bit. Send my best to your family. Always. And uh, best of luck with the eruptions there. Um, We'll be staying, staying closely aware. Absolutely. See you soon, bud. Hello again, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris. I'm a huge fan. I really uh, treasure his friendship. Uh, He's massively inspiring to me. And we didn't really talk about it, but... His invitation to go to the West Fjords and ride with him and Lael and Rue and Nicole, which we touched on in the episode, was pivotal for me. It was really, no exaggeration, a life-changing trip, in part because of the West Fjords bit, but also his idea to ride across Iceland and try to do it in a single push and see if it could be done in less than a day. Well, doing it in less than a day was my idea, but uh, doing it in a single push was his idea. and. Together, we just kind of cooked up this plan, and he was so, so pivotal in making it happen, um, and I'm so grateful. And at some point, he and I should should talk about that uh, more in a recorded setting um, so I can give him full credit, and we can kind of tell some funny stories about pulling it together and his guidance on all that. But all that to say, I always love catching up with Chris. He's always a popular guest. I hope you really enjoyed that conversation, too, and I'm sure we'll be having him on again in not too long. 
I do want to say a big thank you to One Up USA for making today's episode possible. As I said at the top of the show, we are a huge fan of their bike racks. Uh, we have two of them. We have the Super Duty Quad on the Bronco, which comes hugely in handy all race season. We rely on it like crazy for scouting missions, getting to the races, of course. Uh, and then week to week back home here in Durango or in Bentonville, if we want to drive to a trailhead or meet up with friends, whatever it may be. It just makes life so easy. And the quad rack is awesome. That's what we have on the Bronco. Super Duty uh, has huge payload capacity with the rack attached 2.0. So it swings out uh, and makes using the tailgate easy. And then we have the equipped double on Nicole's little Subaru, which works great. It's a low clearance car, but the engineering and design is just perfect for that sort of thing. I just highly recommend uh, One Up's stuff. It's all made in the USA. Love that. And free shipping on many of the orders. Go to the number one word up dash USA.com one up dash USA.com to learn more. Lastly, a big thank you to Lily McKelvin for editing and producing every one of these shows, which meant two this week. She's been on double duty. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>